So this morning, we're picking up on a series some of you may recall, and uh, we did it about five or six years ago, and the steering team said, well, maybe a quick thing, how many have joined us in the last five or six years? So um, you're, there's, there's a fair number of us for whom this is new, and this is a little bit sort of our, our ministry DNA, and so... Um, we're going to be taking uh, a stroll, as it were, through a few things. This morning, we're going to look at stop for the one and how to make ministry moments happen uh, when you encounter. And then speaking God's heart to people and, uh, and, and paying attention uh, in, in, in the prophetic 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 says, eagerly desire all the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In other words, share God's heart and his thoughts with people. And then uh, we're going to talk about our stories. Like you go through battles, you go through stuff, but when you share that, you actually give away the spoils. And then um, we're going to come back a little bit after Easter because there's several uh, disruptions. And in a, in a in several weeks, uh, we're going to return uh, and, and look at a lifestyle of, as it were, the 101s of repentance and restitution, of forgiveness, reconciliation, and building into a healthy space in our lives. So um, just to give you a little bit of heads up, on Tuesday evenings um, for the next three weeks, so the 21st, the 28th, and the 7th, and then a little bit again in March, half past seven, hopefully by, say, half past eight, quarter to nine, we're done. And we're literally going to take time, and you'll have a worksheet, and you'll have a small group, or uh, depending on the particular topic we're covering, uh, you might sit with one person, for example, when you're learning to tell your story um, and share the spoils. And we're going to actually go through the process. What's it like to pray for someone? What's the, what's the heads up? So most of us, when we want to pray with someone, we close our eyes. Nowhere do we read that Jesus ever closed his eyes to pray or do ministry. In fact, we read the exact opposite. Looking at him, Jesus said, or looking up to heaven, or as in the house of Simon, as we'll see a little bit later, the Pharisee who invited Jesus for a meal and then ignored him in every single way. And then a woman came in and started washing his feet. And uh, it says, Jesus looked at Simon and said, Simon, do you see this woman? And his eyes were wide open. He's engaging in the ministry space. And he's doing so in a way where he's paying full attention to what's going on around him. So, we want to pick up this morning, and we're going to dive in at Matthew chapter 4. We've seen how in our, uh, in our, our last series on um, how our identity in Christ being made in the image of God, Jesus treated all as those who were made in God's image, made to know God. He believed they could ultimately reveal God. In other words, God could be seen and known through the lives of the problem people he was encountering. Uh, in fact, when Jesus looked at crowds and crowds of lost people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew chapter 9, he says, sure, there's a good harvest over here. 
He had the faith to believe that these people who everyone else thought were, you know, in a mess would one day be the workers for the harvest field. When he says, ask the Lord of the harvest for workers in his harvest field, he's believing that those very people who were in distress and like sheep without a shepherd would one day become the workers in the harvest field. He didn't have a mega church back at Nazareth to say, hey, we need to send out the clipboards and get people to sign up. He was literally believing that God would take those lives, turn them around, and move them into ministry. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 4, where we see the start of Jesus' own ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People were brought to him who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and then... And he healed them. Gee, Lord Jesus, <laughs> come again. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, meaning 10 of the largely Gentile cities, actually. Jerusalem, Judea, the region across the Jordan. People just began following Jesus. And then we read, if we go to Matthew chapter 9, and then Matthew chapter 10, for example, Jesus we have the exact same statement again, that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, healing every disease and sickness. And funny enough, that's what we call an inclusio. In other words, we've just had, by a literary device, an explanation between Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9 in all the examples. So we've had the Sermon on the Mount and then we've had Matthew's, uh, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, which are all the encounters again and again. So he heals the centurion's servant and he heals the man who says, Lord, if you're willing, and so on. And he encounters someone demon-possessed. And you see in the story, and so you've got this bracket, as it were, a parenthesis or an inclusio in which it's introduced, it's proved, and then you get the conclusion. And then immediately Jesus says, okay, so now you know what I'm about. It's time for you to get about what I'm about. Pray that the Lord would raise up these workers, send them out, and in a sense multiply me. That's his heart. Now, of course, we know that his ministry was the overflow of the relationship he had with the Father. Like, you know, he just said, I can do nothing without it. Every word I speak flows out of that relationship, obedience to, uh, empowerment from, and all of this was by the work and the presence and the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at that a little bit, you know, it's, um, it's called the perichoresis, this interpenetration of all the members of the Trinity, this Wonderful dance of their relationship. And out of that communion, out of that intimacy in which we are drawn in, flows ministry. Now, as Jesus does, does this, time and again, we see that Jesus stops for someone. So, as in Simon's house, there's the story, the backstory of Simon, and, and there's so many examples today that I haven't got a single long reading, okay? But I just want to show you uh, sort of like the pat 
everything that's inside of Jesus' way of approaching things. So time and time again, we find Jesus stopping for someone. And it says, you'll read, Jesus looked at him. Jesus turned to them. Jesus stopped and looked. Bevan took us through Zacchaeus in the evening congregation. Jesus comes up. And so something happens inside Jesus as he's going about his every day in which he's paying attention to the people that God is bringing into his space. Simon the Pharisee, he had noted the woman, but he hadn't seen her. He was offended by her presence, but he was not interested in her as a person. In fact, he wanted her out. And he believed that if Jesus was a real prophet, Jesus would have driven this woman away from his feet. Jesus looks at Simon and says, do you see this person? You see, often in the ministry encounters that might be opening up for us, our ability to actually see someone becomes a really important part of what happens next. If we don't see them, we won't stop. You see, in stopping for the one, Jesus is declaring again that this person, made in the image of God, is the outworking of the purpose and plan of God. God has a breathtaking, redemptive purpose for their life. They still have to sign up for it. Make no mistake. It's not automatic. But if I ignore them, they might never hear what God has for their life. And then, in these moments of ministry, following out of, Father, what are you doing? Holy Spirit, what do you want to say? You see, as we read in Matthew chapter 4, like Jesus undoes the fall. So in Matthew 4, there was all this sickness and brokenness and curse, and, and people are suffering in a dozen different ways, and Jesus literally goes after every evidence of exclusion and hurt and sickness and suffering and demonization and dispossession, and he goes after it to undo the fall. It's like, this is why I'm here. The kingdom of God is here. The dominion of darkness. Days are numbered. And I want to restore life to this person as God intends. Now, here's the, here's the thing. We often think of Jesus preaching to the crowds and, you know, the passage we read talks about how people came from all, you know, across the Jordan and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Syria. So, like, there were just people flocking towards where Jesus was. But the thing that again and again in the stories of the Gospels opens up that kind of interest is the encounters that Jesus has with the individuals again and again. And so if we're going to unlock a group of people, it could even be a small group. It could be your lecture class at uni. It could be your colleagues. If we're going to unlock the larger group, if we're going to unlock a Pinelands, if we're going to unlock a Cape Town, it's because we've learned to start where Jesus starts, where he walks in and he looks 
almost for the individual and says, God, what do you want to do here in this person? Jesus never worked the crowds. He just didn't. In fact, he seemed to do things that were completely self-defeating if you were trying to whip up crowds. But people were irresistibly drawn to someone who was willing to stop for the one. And so as these people came, for example, it's in the context of large crowds that Jesus discerns that Holy Spirit's anointing and power has just gone through him like a bolt of lightning. And he turns, and I mean, you've seen footage or maybe even experienced those Middle Eastern sort of like communal events where, I don't know if it's a funeral or a wedding or something. I mean, everybody is pretty much touching everybody else. And like there's this movement and you're just thinking like, you know, don't they know about personal space? And uh, that's just not in their framework, in their culture, whatever. And he's walking down the road and there's these people and none of them know about personal space and none of them grew up in England with a stiff upper lip. And still he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding us? Like, this is a circus. How could you say, somebody touched me? And he stops and now, I mean, there's a little girl dying, and he still stops. And he looks around. And I'm 100% certain he was relying on the Holy Spirit to give him the discernment because he knew that he had had an encounter of faith that the person knew about and he did not yet know about. And he's just paying attention, listening, and the woman realizes he's going to work this out. There's a prophetic here, and he's going to work it out. He's going to know. And so she's terrified, Mark writes. Who knows what she thought? You know, she, she was never supposed to touch him. She had an issue of blood. She was regarded as unclean. She shouldn't have come into the crowd. She shouldn't have come in. She probably had to press her way past 100 other people. Interesting thing is Jesus didn't become unclean. She became clean. She pressed through, touched him, and she is transformed. But Jesus stops. I mean, he could have just carried on. Jesus stops. Why? Because he wanted her to be recognized before everyone as redeemed and healed and whole. He wanted to restore her to community and not just to health. He wanted to restore her to dignity and respect and minister to her person. And he wanted to know that she, her to know that she was loved. God had seen her. And he wanted her to know, very especially, that her faith had been the catalyst for what she had experienced. Your faith has made you well. And so Jesus does all of that by stopping for the one. He stops for Zacchaeus under a sycamore tree. He, he calls to one man at a tax table giving Matthew, this man who'd probably given up on being good. I mean, the sinners were, and Matthew and his mates, they had just stopped thinking of being good as a solution for their life path. And Jesus breaks in. He stops for Bartimaeus, this blind man, crying out beside the road. He stops for a self-harming, demonized man 
that makes everybody spitlessly scared. She stops for her widow and raises her dead son. He stops for a woman who has to go for water at midday so that she won't meet anyone else at a Samaritan well. He stops his preacher, miracle, when, <laughs> when a paralyzed man gets lowered down through the roof to his feet. And he's like, that can wait. This is right now. Father God, what do we do? How do we respond in this moment? And he declares his sins forgiven. And then he heals his body. Discerns what is most needed. Not that all healing requires forgiveness. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But in this instance, he realized there was probably guilt and regret and shame and blame being laid all over them. And he breaks the power of that old story and gives him a new story. In that encounter, Jesus stops again and again for the one. No wonder the crowds found him irresistible <laughs> because he's so meaningfully engaged with people as people. Why? To affirm the value and the love that God has for every single person. God's love is not just an idea. It's as real as the breath you and I breathe. His heart for us, it's personal, it's encounter, and it's rooted in creation and in redemption. God has displayed his love for us by making the world all around us, and he has proved his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second reason is that when Jesus stops for the one, and he's walking into a different environments, when Jesus stops for the one, he's very aware, aware that there's like an atmosphere or an environment, either of faith or doubt, of confidence or despair, of discouragement, uh, or of, you know, following through and expectation. And so often those things get determined by what's going on in individual lives. And so we kind of go on, and we don't realize that we carry this kind of vibe, you know. I don't like the word, but, you know, some people talk about the aura. or what I think just atmosphere, whatever you want to talk about. I'm not into, like, stuff that's, you know. But, but there's something about, as it were, that, that word environment, atmosphere, attitude. You put enough attitudes together and you get, an, you, you get a feel. You get a feel for a place. You get a feel. And, and, and as indirect as that is, that has a massive impact. I mean, some of us have sat here listening maybe to messages or whatever, and then someone stands up and gives a testimony. And... You literally feel the atmosphere change. You know something in you and probably in everybody else. Suddenly there's a level of expectation and confidence that before that moment just felt completely unlikely. It wasn't even on your radar. How much more then when it's not just a testimony, but it's actually ministry that happens in front of our eyes 
we suddenly go, maybe this is for me too. If he can do this for them. And suddenly we find, whether it's the woman at the well and she rushes back into the town, and a whole lot of Samaritans come to believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, because of her story, because Jesus stopped for her. And again and again, for, for the Gerasene demoniac, you know, Jesus has to say, go back, tell your people. Well, the next time Jesus comes to that region, the first time they were saying, Jesus, go away, go away, we're scared, we don't know what's going on. When this guy had finished telling his story through to his friends and his family and his town and his community, the next time Jesus came, they were all there and they'd all come for healing and they'd all come to hear what Jesus had to say. You see, the danger is that when we look at a world that is like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, and under instead of, on top of, what happens to us is we go, this is ridiculous, this is impossible, we're not going to be able to pull this off. And our faith just leaks out the roof. And trying to fix the mega is almost always going to be self-defeating. How do you deal with issues of poverty, dispossession, and disadvantage in our country? If you're going to try and deal with it 50 million people in one go, you are going to feel overwhelmed and give up. But if you ask, who are my employees, or who are my colleagues, or who are the people that are in my circle right now, and if I had to stop and get the facts of their life, how could I engage in Jesus' name? And what starts to happen is when you take it one person at a time, you will find the faith to pray into that space. I'm going to get more practical on that a little bit later and, and then also definitely on Tuesday evening. And what it does, of course, and we've seen this now in several of these stories, the person's story almost becomes a prophecy. It becomes like a picture of what is possible for everyone. And so... If it's someone coming to faith, like the Samaritan woman, I mean, she wasn't healed. She was made whole, but she wasn't healed. There wasn't any physical disability. And yet, that restoration of her life into community and into faith and into relationship with God. And so she goes. In fact, Luke 5 and 6 shows a pattern. It just repeats all throughout Galilee. There's all kinds of faith environments that get unlocked. Whole communities are touched. And what happens just before that? Jesus reaches out to one man with leprosy. Jesus touches the man with leprosy. He's healed, and the environment opens up. In chapter 6, ministry opens up when, when there's a man with a shriveled hand, and everybody thinks Jesus shouldn't do it because it's Saturday, and it's a Sabbath. Jesus is not willing to wait one day for a healing. Like he could have done it without offense the next day, but he's like, now the interesting thing we read, and Jesus went down, verse 17, for the value of that one man, Jesus goes to war, and he heals him in front of everyone in spite of their silly offense. And we read of the crowds that come to him. And then it says here, those with troubled by impure spirits were cured, Verse 19, Luke 6, all the people try to touch him. Power was coming out from him and healing them all. What he did encourage for one person suddenly opens up so much more for everyone else. 
then we stop for the one. So what are we going to take away? The first is just remember we start how Jesus starts. <laughs> we are going to stop for the one, but we do so from a place of knowing we are loved. We do so from a place of knowing God is good and I'm relying on him. You are not the solution. I am not the solution. You don't even have the answer or the resources or the power. You just don't. I mean, again, last week, um, Nell hasn't shared the testimony, but she came to the prayer meeting and her heart was dicky and all gummy and full of pain. And we prayed. And part of the prayer is, Jesus, this is ridiculous. Like, this is, of course, not us. We can't do this. This is impossible. This is not science. This is not medicine. This is grace and power. And was it literally while we prayed? Literally while we prayed, she felt her heart stabilized, the pain left, and she's been fine since then. Thank you, Lord. And so, now, nobody in that room has got a little magic bunny in a box to make things happen. You don't. You step in and you trust God. And that trust comes from being in the place where God speaks his love over your life. You know, back in Luke, um, the early chapters show how many times Jesus spent time in his father's house learning love and wisdom, in his baptism, hearing the uh, God. Jesus retreats with prayer and fasting. He overcomes the enemy. He steps into ministry. Luke 6, before all this power was coming out of him, it says, and he climbed a mountain and spent the night praying. He went up the mountain, found time. He knows that having the resources to be available to the individuals around him requires him to be with the Father in the Spirit. I haven't got anything to give away until I've been with him. And again and again, there's this rhythm in his life which he's with the Father, and then he's with the people, and he's with the Father. And that encounter, yes, it leads to crowds, but it almost never starts there. It almost always starts with somebody in you who seems like a problem, and you stop, you listen, you pay attention, you keep your eyes open, you pray. <laughs> And so we learn to shape ministry. You see, often it's easy to get overwhelmed by the big issues because we think they need big solutions. So stopping for the one is about small solutions that can multiply. We saw it earlier in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus sees the vast crowds and their problems, and he says, oh, we need lots of more. We need lots of people willing to stop for one. <laughs> we need lots of people willing to spend time with the Father, receive the grace and the love of God by the Spirit, and then step out and meet these people who need healing and salvation and freedom and to just do it again and again. So Jesus doesn't believe in big solutions. He believes in scalable solutions. You know what that is? You start a business, and instead of trying to grow the business bigger and bigger, 
we start another one, we start another one, and we start another one. He believes in multiplication rather than addition. He's not trying to make himself bigger. He's trying to make himself more. And he wants to do that through you and me. Now, we often get this mixed up in our community spaces. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, and, and whether it's a small group or, um, you know, some kind of ministry group or um, you might be doing a course or you might be in a life group or something like that, um, we often think of doing, like, support group type things. And there's been a lot of training, a lot of learning, and a lot of academic research that have gone into it. The interesting thing is, for all the power that is supposedly inside that idea, it's not how Jesus did it. We never read of Jesus sitting with the 12 and telling, asking them all individually, tell me how you feel, and da-da-da-da, and, you know, getting all their rubbish on the table and then thinking, okay, so how the heck do we pray now that everyone has just put their grief, sorrow, trouble into the middle of the room? I know that I've been in small groups where it's sort of like, and how are you, and how are you, and how are you, and how are you? And by the time we've all honestly answered the thing, faith left at about person number three and isn't coming back for another week. I am absolutely shattered by that. Now, the interesting, I'm convinced this is more how Jesus would do it. Having a conversation with Peter, he'd go all the way with Peter to the moment when they actually pray and Peter receives ministry and gets some kind of turnaround point. And the rest of the people just have to wait or join in the ministry. But it's, it's not that you all share your problems and then one person concludes in prayer, oh, Jesus, help us all, Amen. And, and we've got so used to that way that we're actually quite scared of Christian community now because I don't want to get in a circle and feel overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but like, it's not my idea of a fun evening, you know. So, so how about when someone comes into that space and you ask the first person, how are you doing? And if they share when, then you celebrate and you go, you know. So our family's got a little thing. You share highs and lows sometimes, and if at the end, they haven't got any lows. We go, no low, no low, no low, no low, no low. Hey! And we celebrate the fact that they had no lows. And uh, because we make such a noise about it, people are always honest to share something. Um, <laughs> but sometimes you genuinely can celebrate that it's just good. And there's a, there's a great story, and you can give thanks. But when someone shares something that's just about ready to tear your heart apart, and you've got no idea what to do, you don't have an answer. That's the moment you lean into God. And you don't keep going in the group and hope someone else will pray with faith at the end of the evening. You grab hold of whatever faith you've got that is wanting to run away. And you say, come, sit here now with me. And you lean in and you do what Jesus did. As a group, you pray for that one person. And you invest, you you. You exhaust your faith. You give it a full go. And some of you have met with me either in my study or we talk about stuff. And we're very aware it's bigger than us and we can't solve this and we haven't got easy solutions. But at the end of it, we are going to pray. 
We are going to go after that freedom that Jesus gives. We're going to go after the healing. We're going to go after the forgiveness. We're, gonna, we're not going to stop with the story and say, oh God, you know, we're going to look for that gospel moment. We're going to stop for the one, pray, and invite God to step in and show up. Now the amazing thing is when you do, even if you don't get an answer, it's done in an atmosphere of love, the person already feels stronger. Like the whole room, the environment just feels better. Then you can go to the next person. And if you don't get to everyone in that meeting, it's fine. There's another week. And then group leaders, if the same person's coming every week, you obviously manage that, you know. You make sure there's a turn. And people get the opportunity to receive real ministry rather than just share. Who shared with Jesus and didn't get ministry? Like, it just didn't happen. It wasn't his paradigm. Like when the need became evident, that became the point of response. Now we'll look on Tuesday night. We need to be very clear. We need to be free from trying to come up with solutions for people. We'll talk about that on Tuesday. But we do want to point them very clearly towards the God who wants us to stop for them. Then, once we've prayed for that, you can literally say, is there anybody else? I, I've literally seen life groups become like as exciting as any football match. It is like watching somebody receive what they need. And before you even finish, there's someone else says, can you pray for me? Da -da 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 -da. And they want that same faith. They want that same encouragement. And so the knock-on effect begins. Why? Because you face need in an environment of faith. And that's what stop for the one ministry culture does. Jesus is stopping for the one so that he can grow faith to go further. And you know what? We're allowed in those moments. Not indefinitely but if Jesus takes me into a space I mean you guys know me I've got my issues I've got my family you know heartaches and challenges and whatever else but when I face someone they need ministry the devil wants to come and say who are you and in that moment the answer is this is not about me this is about them in that moment, there is a time in my quiet time listening to Jesus, search me, O oh God, know my anxious thoughts, you know, see if there's any wicked way in me. But when you're stopping for the one, the devil wants to say, hey, you didn't do a proper job of searching your heart. You better go read Psalm 139. There's rubbish. That is not the time. That is, that is like offside. It's not about you. This is about this person. And Father God, and God's brought you into that moment. And the enemy's going to want to shout a hundred things at you that would disqualify you from being ready in that moment. But you're stopping for the one. You're stopping for this person. You're allowed to put your stuff on hold. It's not hypocrisy. It's selflessness. In which you pay attention to what God wants to do for this person. You give it all you've got, and at the end of it, you rely on the God who wants to do the same for you.
And so one of the things is learning, and the Colossians 3 verse, by the way, is very appropriate to this, is that out of your connection with God, out of being seated in heavenly places, out of knowing that I'm forgiven and reconciled, you can place yourself to bless somebody to receive all that God has for them. I love this last line, this little blessing. To receive all that he has for you today. I bless you in Jesus' name. That your spirit, your, you may connect to Holy Spirit and lead everything about you. And in biblical language, you know, sort of like short uh, abbreviations, all of you is your spirit, soul, and body, the whole person of you. What, however you want to cut that and slice that, and, and it's not about what the exact separations are, it's just about the totality of your being. Through communion with God, your thoughts, your emotions, in every way, you receive everything that God has for you 